And so for this month, because of the 500th anniversary of that nailing on that door, which was such a significant moment, uh, we've been thinking about the Reformation. We've been thinking about, like, so what? <laughs> a, a German monk in, uh, in 1517 in northern Germany nailing 95 thoughts to a door sparked something that has revolutionized Europe and the rest of the world. It's the kind of moment we think about being the, the pivot moment where everything kicked off for this thing called the Reformation. It's where the, the Protestant church began. There's all sorts of aspects to it. Like they, uh, the voice said in the clip there, it has implications politically in terms of freedom of religion, in terms of nation states. There's just a, a whole host of things that have come from that. But that moment was not really just that moment. It wasn't just that 95 theses that sparked everything and and it was all done and dusted with that. It was really a key moment in a history that was going on over a period of time where uh, others had recognized some of the same things and had challenged some of those same thoughts and had given their lives for it. It was something that continued on after 1517. Some of what Luther wanted to change didn't change. Some of it did. And so here we are 500 years later and we're thinking about, so what? So what difference does it make? The Reformation, it doesn't take much to find stuff. Even the BBC website has something about Martin Luther on it at the moment. And so it's not hard to find that it happened, but so what? What difference does it make? Now, one of the things that, that we've probably said multiple times over this month is the fact that for Luther, his rediscovery, it wasn't that he invented anything. He rediscovered what was always in the Bible anyway. In fact, for Luther, he was this really kind of uh, intense monk who was doing everything he possibly could to please God, and he couldn't in any way feel like he could get close to pleasing God, and he was shining the floor and confessing for hours on end and just doing everything that he possibly could, and he just had this deep, deep sense that God was not satisfied with him, that God was angry with him. In fact, he was angry with God. He said, I didn't love God. I, I hated him for expecting us to live up to a standard that is impossible to live up to. He saw God as this harsh judge. And so what happened was Luther's mentor in the, in the monastery recognized something in Luther that, that needed to be worked out. And so he sent him away to study. He sent him to study the Bible and to end up teaching the Bible. So he was kind of given a job of teaching something uh, when you kind of look on from the outside and go, don't let him teach. All right, he's a mess. But they, they sent him away and he studied and he came back and he was teaching in the University uh, of Wittenberg and he was teaching Psalms and he was teaching Romans and he was teaching Galatians. And gradually, what the Bible was saying was kind of coming out to him. It wasn't all in one moment, it was gradual, but gradually what he was discovering was changing him. It was changing his view of God and therefore it was changing his view of the message of the Bible. And really that's the heart of it. Spending time in the Bible led him back to what the Bible had been saying all along. I suppose there's a challenge for us there, isn't there? Are we spending time in the Bible? Are we reading the Bible for ourselves? Because that's one of the values of this church, is that we know God through the Bible and we pursue him. We want to know him, not based on our own imaginations or our own ideas, but reading the Bible to see what God has to say about himself. 
And so let me give you a Luther quote just to give a sense of, uh, of that kind of transformation that, that took place. And then we're going to jump into the Bibles and look at something uh, that I think is incredibly important for all of us and relevant too. So here's Luther. He, he wrote this, if you have a true faith that Christ is your savior, then at once you have a gracious God for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger or ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. Do you kind of get the, the, the gist of what he's saying there? That if Jesus is your savior, then God is not a scary figure. If Jesus is your savior, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then instantly his father is your father. And, and the father that Jesus can delight in and pray to and speak to and just be completely comfortable with, that's your father. And so a father who is pure grace and overflowing love where there is no anger nor ungraciousness, that's a massive shift. That's a shift from Luther kind of scrubbing the floors and and getting all upset and throwing ink pots at the wall and all the different things he did in his upsetness, which ultimately came down to the fact that he hated God to that getting to a place where he could talk about the friendly heart of God his Father. That's a massive shift. And that's what the Reformation in many ways is all about. It's that shift from a God who has been portrayed by the medieval church as this frightening, angry judge to the God that reveals himself in the Bible, the God that we delight to know here at Trinity We want all to be transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. That's kind of our vision statement. And and I think Luther would cheer that on, uh, although I'm not overly confident uh, that I would feel safe in Luther's presence. He'd probably have something to say. He's quite a feisty character. But but there's, there's, there's that heart of God that we can know. And the more we know him, the more we're transformed. And that's what we're about here at Trinity. And I want us to look at something in the Bible that is right at the heart of the message that Luther rediscovered. And it's it's one word. It's the word peace. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5. If you need a Bible, put your hand up and uh, we'll, we'll get one to you from the back or the front. Um, So we're going to go to page 942 in the uh, church Bibles. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, we have peace. We have peace. Let's just think about that word peace for for a moment. The, The word peace to us is quite a simple concept, isn't it? Peace is where wars have ended, where there has been hostility and the hostility has ceased. We celebrate peace, don't we, on the uh, 11th of November, the end of the First World War, when peace descended after four years of horrific uh, killing. 
We think about peace in the Middle East. We talk about peace in the Ukraine and peace among warring factions, you know, the tensions in Spain. All around us, we're surrounded by situations that don't seem peaceful. And so we think peace equals the end of fighting. And in one sense, that's fine. If we just went with that as a definition, the idea that we can have peace before God would be wonderful. That the God who we sense is ready to judge to have peace with that God would be would be a wonderful gift and that's what this verse says it says we have peace with God but before we get into this verse I want us just to think about peace because it's more than just the end of a war sometimes in our home we have mini wars not full-blown wars and not too much bloodshed thankfully but sometimes there's a little bit of tension uh, and sometimes there's a little bit extra tension, and sometimes it's best just to not be there because there's you know, some battle raging between two people. And when peace comes, it's just quiet. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's resolved. It might mean that mum and dad have had to step in and separate just to you know, kind of end the noise for a little while. But, but peace is not simply the end of hostilities. In the Old Testament, the uh, idea of peace is of massively... Uh, kind of foundational concept. You might have even heard the word. They still use it in in Israel today. Shalom is how they greet people. Shalom. It means peace. And yet when you go, uh, let's say you're walking through Jerusalem or the West Bank or somewhere, uh, you'll hear the word shalom or peace from the strangest situations. You could walk past a tank, for example, And on top of the tank, this weapon of war, uh, fully decked out in bulletproof armor and all the rest of it is a soldier with a gun that could kill you and everyone you've ever met in, you know, just a split second. And if you're bold enough to speak to the soldier, what the soldier will say back would be shalom. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's funny. Shalom. Yeah. You want to get away, right? And you go across the border or into the other side and you find some uh, angry looking uh, Palestinian or whatever with a gun or a stone or a bottle or whatever weapon they have and you're probably a little bit nervous on the inside. I did get nervous once with a Palestinian who offered me 200 camels for my wife. Um, I was a little bit nervous because he said it and I was a little bit nervous because internally I was thinking... I'm a bit upset with you. And you know, so let's say you're in a, in a tense situation and there's someone there who, who, who you're a little bit scared of and you, you, you speak to them and they respond in Arabic and they would say, salam, peace, same different language, same word. How is it that in a place that is like this bubbling war zone with tanks and broken bottles and all the tensions and all the fighting that they can constantly be saying peace to each other and peace to you if you dare to speak to them? Actually, it's quite an old concept. You go back into the Old Testament. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Famous old story. Uh, so the, the Israeli army was on one side of the, the um, valley, and on the other side was this other army, and their champion was this dude called Goliath. He wouldn't want to speak to him. He was deadly frightening. And he was massive and armored, and he would come out, and he would challenge the people, and it was this kind of a standoff. And it's famous because David ends up fighting him and killing him. But, but at the start of the story, we get this little bit where David's dad, remember David uh, was the youngest of the sons of Jesse. And Jesse said to David, 
His three oldest sons were in the army. And he says to David, I think it's 1 Samuel 17, verse 18, go and check on your brothers and see if they are well. That's how it's translated. But what he says literally is, go and check on the shalom of your brothers. That's a ridiculous statement. Dad, they're soldiers. They're on the front lines. It's a war. What do you mean, check on the peace of the brothers? I mean, the, the peace in the middle of war, that makes no sense. Well, it does if shalom or peace doesn't simply mean the end of hostility. You see, in the the Hebrew mindset, in the uh, Old Testament, in the Bible way of, of viewing things, peace and shalom is much bigger than just no fighting. It means that everything's the way it should be. Things are right. Things are in order. Things are are lining up the way they should line up. This person's got things. uh, I used to have a a boss in America who would talk about things being squared away. I I never knew what he meant, but it sounded like shalom, like everything's squared away. Everything is as it should be. All the ducks are in a row. Everything is the, the right shape. That's the idea of peace, for everything to be right, everything to be squared away, everything to be the way it should be which actually is much more than just the absence of hostility, right? Now we come back to Romans 5. Paul's writing this. Paul was Jewish background. He's not going to throw the word peace out there without having that kind of Old Testament awareness in his thinking. And so Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That means not just that any hostilities between us and God are finished. It means that things are right. That things are, are lined up the way they should be. That, that me and God, we're okay. That things are, are, are more than just neutral. They're positive. So what's Paul talking about? Because that seems like a massive, massive claim, doesn't it? That Because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Already in the book of Romans, he's talked about God who judges sin. He's talked about the reality uh, that guilt is a real deal. I was just reading somebody this week who who, who made the comment that with, with guilt, guilt is a feeling. And the feeling is that it's more than a feeling. We have to think about that. What he was saying was that the feeling of guilt that we have is this kind of underlying sense that it's not just a feeling. Something's actually not right. And and so when we think about standing before the God who made everything, and we have this feeling of guilt within us, the feeling is that it's more than a feeling. There's something to this. There's some reality here that we don't really want to face. And that's why people do whatever they can to try to make things right. If you grew up in a kind of a Catholic family, then you would have known about going to Mass and doing the sacraments and the confessions and so on. If you grew up in a sort of a New Age environment, you would have been trying different things to settle the feeling. If you grew up in a a totally atheistic family, you would have heard quite strong statements against the possibility of there being a God or him having a right to judge. There's different ways of dealing with it, but the feeling's there that something's not right, and and I don't know what to do about it. 
And as Paul has written this letter to the church at Rome, what he's writing to them is the amazing thing that God has done, that basically he's created this opportunity for a great exchange to take place. Where Jesus has come into the world and he's uh, come from heaven to us. He's become one of us. He's come and lived with us. He's come and identified completely with us. And then he's gone and done something that none of us could do. He's died not just for his own sin because he didn't have any, but he's died for our sin. In Romans, he talks about the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus has come and has died in our place to objectively deal with that guilt. To make it so that by trusting in him, an exchange takes place. So all of the, all of the guilt, all of the things we've done wrong and said wrong and thought wrong and would have done if we had the chance to do, and, and all of the, the yuck in our lives, all of the brokenness, all of the, the things that, that we regret, all of the skeletons in the closet, the entire collection of everything about us that is not right has been passed on to Jesus. It's been transferred over to his account and he has died in our place and he has paid the penalty for our sin so that we no longer have to pay the penalty for it. But that's not an exchange. That's only half the deal. And so all of our guilt has gone to him, but what do we get back? All of his righteousness, all of his life, all of his goodness has been transferred to us. The moment we trust him. The moment we say, Jesus, I am trusting you that your death was good enough for God. It's good enough for me. I want to be one of your people. I'm yours. I just trust you. I've got no plan B. I've got no backup arrangements. I'm just putting everything on you. You It doesn't matter the words you use. Jesus can translate words, but, but it's that sentiment of the heart that says, I am absolutely throwing myself on you and I've got nothing else to offer. No goodness, no good deeds, no charity work, nothing. I've got nothing. It's all nothing compared to what you've done. I'm trusting you. In that moment, our guilt is gone. In that moment, all of the negatives all of the weight, all of the, the, the enmity, the tension with God that is legitimately there is taken away. And in that moment, all of the wonder of Jesus' relationship with his Father, the beauty of what he has shared for all of eternity, that perfect, peaceful, close, in order, just great relationship, it is passed to us. And so we have not just no guilt, but we have the righteousness of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 1. When he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have trusted Jesus and this great exchange has taken place, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that the battle's over. It's that things are good. Isn't that an amazing thought? It's not just that that God tolerates you. It's that he's pleased that you're his. I think a lot of us believe that, that God is willing to tolerate us because of Jesus. Maybe we've heard that over the years. But I suspect a number of us struggle to think that God thinks anything more than neutral when he thinks about us. 
But actually, if we've trusted in Jesus, if we are in Christ, as Paul keeps writing all through his letters, if we've been kind of brought into the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, all these different images, if we are part of his people, then as God looks on us, he looks on us with a smile. He's delighted that we're his. Therefore, we don't just have no hostility. We have peace with God. Everything's good. Everything's squared away. Everything's as it should be between us and God. In fact, he carries on verse 2. It's really the same sentence. He says, and through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's like he's saying there's a place, like, like a circle of grace. And because of Jesus, we have stepped into it. And we're now in the grace place before God. But when God looks at us, he looks on us with favor and with grace. His goodness is poured out towards us. And therefore, like Luther said, we can look on God with his fatherly, tenderly, friendly heart, his his gracious, compassionate, kind heart toward us. Why? Because through Jesus, we have been introduced. It's like Jesus has opened the door and said, oh, Tim, I'm glad you're here. Come on in to the grace place. Becky, I'm glad you're here. Thrilled to have you. Grace, this is where you can stand. And as God looks on us, he's looking on us in the grace place. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's just like this whole package in these first two verses that just says, wow, everything's different. And all that is required of us is that we accept that God's done it, that we trust Jesus. It doesn't say, oh, and by the way, you've got to get your act together. Oh, and by the way, you've got to fix things and you've got to turn over a new leaf and you've got to make this commitment and that commitment and give money and do this. Nothing. There's nothing required of us. All we bring is our sins, our death, our damnation. And we just bring the mess that is our lives and we say, oh, it's yours. Jesus says, thank you. I'll take that. Oh, and all that I have is yours. And that's it. That is why we have peace with God. Not just the end of hostilities, but more than that. Things are good between us and God. Now, he carries on, and I'm going to kind of move through these next few verses a little bit quicker because those first two verses are really giving us the truth that I want us to get today. Actually, they're giving us half the truth that I want us to get today. And the the half of the truth that I want us to get is this. Because of Jesus, because of the message of the Bible, because of what God has done in Jesus, we can have peace with God. Let's keep reading. So end of verse 2, he says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He's saying, okay, because we have peace with God, we anticipate the future with joy. The Reformation was about a rediscovery of joy in a very dark world where, where God was viewed with total fear. Luther discovered that God can be enjoyed. And here, Paul's saying, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That means that, that when this life is finished, we get to go and be with him. We get to go and be in his presence where he is, and that is glorious and it is good. And we rejoice in the anticipation of it. I think sometimes the biggest problem we have at this time in our history and in this part of the world is that our lives are too comfortable. 
We're so relatively wealthy and comfortable. Healthcare is insanely good. I mean, we've got so much to make this life seem like the deal, the thing that is to be lived for. But down through the years, Christians who have been suffering, Christians who have been persecuted, Christians who have been struggling, have realized that this is not it. There's something else coming, and they've lived for that. That's what Paul's saying here. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But lest we think it's just a ticket to heaven for when we die, he goes on to say, but there's also a present reality. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. That's weird. Why would you do that? We can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, what he's saying here in in, in kind of short form is that we've got this anticipation of the future, a fact that we can boast in, that we've got the glory of God to come if we trusted Jesus, but we also have the present experience of the glory of God. We anticipate the fact that one day, if we've trusted Jesus, when we die, we get to go to be with him, and that will be absolutely glorious. That's the fact. But we also experience the glory of God Because now, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the the times where we're just crying our eyes out and tearing our hair out and longing for something to change, in the midst of that, God is pouring out his love into our hearts by the spirit that he's given to us. It's like this little taste of what's to come. It's why sometimes you look at a Christian and you go, how in the world are you going through what you're going through and you're going through it with so, such a gracious, peaceful, there's something going on there. And they say things like, well, God's with me. God's, God's there. I, I, I've, I know, I've got, I wouldn't wish what I've gone through on anybody, but God has been closer in these last weeks than he's ever been before. And you hear these comments out of Christians, and what they're describing is what Paul's writing about here, that God pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. See, the peace with God is not just about going to heaven when we die. It's about a reality today. It's about an experience now as well. He goes on to describe the past again, uh, verses 6 and uh, through to 8. Let me read these. These are great verses. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the objective fact. All right, there's, there's that, the, the fact of what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for us. That's reality. That's the fact. Just like we anticipate the glory of God and we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's a fact. But then he talks about the present as well and the experience. Notice how he's doing both the objective fact and the subjective experience Of peace with God. The next couple of verses. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's a lot of words there, and I'm not going to get into the detail of it, but let me just point out, he's talking about where we're at, what God has done, what's going to happen in the future, the fact that we don't need to fear the wrath of God. But more than that, verse 11, we present tense rejoice in God. There's that same present felt subjective experience again. There's the objective fact of what God has done and of where we're going, of what's happened to our guilt, the realities of the Christian message. But there's also the experience of delighting in God right now. Instead of seeing God as a frightening judge that we best avoid if at all possible, instead as Christians we can rejoice in him. We can delight in him. We can discover his totally gracious heart towards us. We can discover his fatherly care, the fact that he is a friend towards us. All of these truths are so rich and they're on offer to us. Let me just take you to one more verse. It's um, page 982, I think. Yeah, page 982, Philippians chapter 4. Still thinking about peace with God. And what Romans 5 has given to us is so wonderful. That I, I kind of feel like if, if I could just press pause, I think this a lot for a lot of other reasons too, but if I could just press pause and we could all just kind of freeze in time, we, we almost couldn't take long enough to contemplate what we've already seen in Romans. You know, we just have this kind of group think, pondering and thinking through, wow, what God has done for us in Jesus. Okay, are we all ready to press play again and get back to life? No, 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 I'm still trying to take it in. We'd be here forever, wouldn't we? That's maybe what eternity is about. There's this reality of peace with God, not just the end of hostilities, but that things are right, that that things are okay, that they're good between us, that we're tight. Just putting all these kind of little labels on something that's so massive, to have everything squared away with God. It's an amazing thought. And then you come to Philippians 4, and Paul's writing to this church in Philippi. I won't get into the story. But he says this in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. He's writing to Christians. And if you're a Christian and you say, I never struggle with anxiety, just relax and and tune out for a couple minutes. But he says, do not be anxious about anything, expecting that they will, knowing that they do. But in everything, everything, Every financial situation, every work situation, every relational situation, every health situation, every tension, every doubt, every fear, every concern, everything that keeps you awake at night, in everything, no matter how big, no matter how small, in everything, by prayer and supplication, which means asking, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You've got direct access. Talk to him about it. And verse 7, he says, And the peace 
of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need that, don't we? Some of us have got no issue about peace with God. We've known that for years. We celebrate it. We worship God for it. But the peace of God, that's what we need. Obviously, we need peace with God. If, if you don't have peace with God, you're anticipating at any moment this life ends and you stand before God, not as your savior, not as your tender-hearted father, but as your judge. That's a horrifically frightening prospect. But having that, once you have peace with God, then what do you need? You need the peace of God. And it's there. It's being offered. Whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, whatever it is that's weighing on us, we need this reminder, don't we, that we can just come to him and say, God, this is bugging me. Or God, this is frightening me. Or Father, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know where to turn. I haven't got an answer. I've got all the, the, these things going on. You can make a list. He can take it. You can, you can spill it out for hours on end or you can just groan and just go, oh, I can't even put it into words. And he can take it because then it promises that the peace of God, the peace of God, the, the fact that God is your heavenly father who loves you and has got everything sorted, even though everything doesn't feel sorted, his peace. What does it say it does? His peace which you cannot get your head around, which you cannot understand, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Actually, the word that is used there is for guard. It's like a garrison. When soldiers come into town and they establish their kind of uh, camp, whatever, and they've got the soldiers and they're marching around, it kind of makes that town feel safe if it's a positive presence, right? And, uh, And to have a garrison of soldiers is a really positive thing if they're on your side. And what this verse is saying is that as you bring your request to God, that financial, health, family, church, whatever the issue is, you bring it to him and you lay it before him, the peace of God sets up a garrison around your hearts and your minds, around the places where the worry happens. You know, sometimes you're worrying and you can't stop thinking and sometimes you're worrying and you can't stop feeling. But God promises to put his peace like a camp of soldiers around your hearts and your minds. That's a wonderful offer, isn't it? That's what we need. I know that we need it because I, I hear about situations in the church. I know that we need it because I need it. I know there are things that, that concern me and that bother me. And my tendency is still to say, it's okay, God, I've got this. And then after a while to realize, what am I doing? Uh, maybe I'm not the only person that calls himself an idiot. <laughs> but I'm really good at thinking I've got it. And as the, the, the kind of tentacles of the worry get bigger and grow further and just grab more, eventually God brings this passage to mind. Go, oh, God, I'm sorry. Here, here's, here's the struggle. Here's the concern. Here here it is, Lord. I lay it before you. And I ask for what you promised in Philippians 4 verse 7. Thank you that I've got peace with God. That's not what I'm talking about now, Lord. I need the peace of God. To set up that army post around my warriors. 
around my heart, around my mind, around my imagination. Just put your, your, your guard of peace around me, knowing that you have got it, that you're in charge, and that things are going to be worked out according to your good purposes. Lord, help me to trust you. I've trusted you for eternity. Now help me to trust you for Monday. I've trusted you, Lord, for eternity. Now help me to trust you for my child. Help me to trust you with this doctor's visit. Help me to trust you with this financial deadline. Lord, I'm just placing it on you. You see, the Reformation was not just a kind of a squabble about theology. It was a rediscovery of the joy that comes from having peace with God and the peace of God. And that would be my prayer for us. If, if the Reformation series is going to leave a mark on us, may it leave that mark that as a group of God's people, we are gripped by the wonderful gift of peace. Not that we've got it all together because we haven't, but that he has. He knows. He cares. He cared enough. It says later on in Romans, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Why do we worry about little things when Jesus has already died on the cross to prove that God loves us? We could keep going. We could go verse after verse because once you have eyes to see it, the Bible is screaming it at you. God is a gracious God who loves you, who wants you to have peace with him and wants you to experience the peace from him. Let's take those verses and ponder them. Let's take them away and plant them into our lives. This week, let's look for situations where we're tempted to fear, tempted to doubt, and open our Bibles to Philippians 4 and say, okay, Lord, here it is. Here's another one. I I know I mentioned this 37 minutes ago, but I'm worrying again. Let me lay it out before you. God's okay with that. He's not like, oh, seriously, again? He knows that we sometimes need to keep casting things on him again and again and again. And you know what? Every time you do that, it pleases him because you're demonstrating that you trust him. And if you go through this week and you're thinking, peace of God sounds wonderful, but peace with God? I'm not sure I have that. If if I was to get uh, hit by the proverbial bus that apparently is this great death threat hanging over all of us, whatever it is, if I was to die this week, would I be confident to stand before God and know that he would smile at me? If you're not certain of that, then the peace of God is not your biggest concern. It's the peace with God that you need. Go back to Romans 5. Look at it. Ponder it. Talk to him about it. Even if you don't think he's definitely there. Just say, God, this is embarrassing because if you don't exist, I'm talking to myself. But if you do exist, and if you are like this book says, I need you. God loves that kind of prayer. He doesn't want us to have it all together. He just wants us to lean towards him so that he can draw us to himself and give us the gift of peace. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you so, so much for all that we've seen over these past few weeks as we've looked at the different subjects, different passages. But Lord, just for what we've thought about today, 
I pray that every one of us here would be absolutely gripped by what your word has said to us. I pray that every one of us would know the the joy and the the freedom and the release and the, the delight of having peace with God because of trusting in Jesus and all that he's done. And Lord, I pray for those of us that are yours, that are in the family, that have already trusted you. Lord, we need the peace of God. So many things swirling, so many things weighing on us. And we ask that you would put your peace like a garrison around our hearts and our minds. Even now, as we worship together, may the words that we sing stir our hearts to trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.